Okay, so I want to jump into, we're going through um, Romans chapter 12, 14 through 21 in this conversation of, truthfully, the, the, the fact that human relationships are hard, and, and once there is some kind of a breach, the bringing together of those relationships, bringing them back together, the reconciliation is in, its, in and of itself a testimony, an evidence of a miraculous gospel, a gospel that is miraculous. Um, and so it requires uh, a miracle for us to be able to recover from those. I'm going to read, again, this is a, it's an extreme passage. And typically speaking, um, especially as a therapist, I discourage people um, from using extreme language, especially in regards to conflict. If you're a, so when somebody, you know, you're in a fight and somebody uses the word always or never or whatever, that's often very distracting to people that they get distracted, you want to do that. So if you go like, you never take me out on a date, um, if you're the person who does that, like who uses the extreme language, just, you know, stop. Don't, don't do that. That's a, it, you're trying to communicate emotion, which is a better way to do that. Now, if you're the person who's hearing that, don't get distracted by that. If, you're, if they go, hey, you never take me out on a date, you don't go like, what? Just 1997. I mean, it's not like it's not never. I mean, never really. I mean, only 20 years ago. So this kind of like, uh, you know, you don't want to do that. Now, however, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 is using extreme language always, never, all, totally. Like he uses a lot of extreme language because this is an extreme teaching. It's an over-the-top teaching that he's going to give. So I'm going to read back to the whole passage together and pick up where we left off last week, um, starting in verse 14 of chapter 12 of Romans. Blessed, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, of course, here we have this. We're down to verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This language is going to be, this is kind of the pivot verse in the middle here. To the degree it's up to you. It's more up to you than you realize. Um, it almost always is. And we're going to talk about how we engage with this and how we have to do this in a way that allows for us a certain level of intentionality, of self-awareness, the humility and wisdom, never being wise in your own eyes. The minute, the minute that you recognize that you think you have the special wisdom, there's probably something wrong with you. The minute you think, I get this and no one else really does, there's probably something wrong and we need to kind of examine and look inward and, and continually be doing this. Humbly, of course, as we talked about the last few weeks, um, this, this a couple of weeks ago, so last week, yes, I was, I've been out, and our whole family's essentially been out this whole week with the flu, down and out this whole week. Um, we're, on the, we're better now. Now we just have to recover from having had a week of being sick and feeling crummy and being tired and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but but that's, that's where we are. But a couple of weeks ago, I was having a, a lunch with uh, a member of the church, Kevin Whitman, and we were hanging out and talking about how a lot of the challenges in this have to do with you know, knowing each other well because we're all so different from one another. 
I mean, you don't struggle with the same sin, the exact same sins that I do. I mean, you may just, you may struggle with some of the same general ones we all kind of do, but you don't. The specific ones that I wrestle with, you may not. They may not be even a temptation for you, and vice versa. The places where I'm insecure, you may not be insecure. We were talking between the service. I was talking with somebody about the fact that years ago, um, I think it was Gary Smalley gets credit for this one, who referenced the idea of the um, the buffalo butterfly effect. Um, which is that the same amount of wind that is meaningless to a buffalo is devastating to a butterfly. And so there is a lot of perspective in regards to this. Like, just because something doesn't hurt me doesn't mean it doesn't hurt the other person. It's so hard for us to get out of our own head or our way of thinking of going like, no, I think you're being unreasonable. Like, right, or you would be saying this. That's a, that's a, tough, it's a tough place to be, to be aware of this. What is it something we can do? Part of it involves us getting to know one another. And we're going to come back to that theme multiple times today. Um, and caring to know. We have to care enough to know what the other person is wrestling with and struggling with. Um, so, for example, I'm in Matthew 5. I want you to, to look at this. Here's what's interesting how Jesus teaches this in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, Jesus says in verse 23, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and Go. First, to be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is an actual, Jesus is actually setting up a priority here. Listen, yes, us giving gifts is a miracle and it represents the gospel. When we give, especially when we give generously, we are communicating the miraculous power of the gospel. Here, Jesus says, however, that that pales compared to the reconciliation between people. That you want to really see the gospel in action, you want to really see the miracle, what happens is take, that, take the gift, leave it. Don't, don't give that gift yet. If you're there and you realize, oh my gosh, something I said or something that I did, or some, it probably hurt this other person. Well, coming before God should reveal that to us. We come before God with our gift, and in that moment we are humbled and realizing, oh wait, now that I have this humble mindset, I realize something that I said or something that I did was probably received this way or came across this way. Or <coughs> and this is an important understanding. As we engage with this conversation, I want to teach you a magic trick. It has nothing to do with me drinking coffee. It is the, the magic trick is, is in the concept of apologizing. Um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. So I want you to imagine that I'm... This someone is jogging, okay? That's, so I'm, I'm running around the track. I'm at the track, and I'm running around the track. And some little kid is there with his mom, and he, he steps, some little three-year-old, two-year-old kid, steps out from his mom right in front of me as I'm jogging around the track, and I just bowl this kid over, okay? I mean, I just, I just plow right into them. What, what did I do wrong? Yeah, nothing, right? I'm jogging at the track. That's allowed, right? Probably encouraged. You should probably be doing that more, right? So that's, that's something you're allowed to do. It's nothing wrong with that. But what do I say to this kid who I just ran over? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, kid. Are you okay, right? Well, what am I apologizing for? I didn't do anything wrong. You ever found yourself on, the, on, on saying that kind of thing? When someone wants you to apologize, you go, why should I apologize? I didn't do anything wrong. What does apologizing and doing something wrong have to do with each other? My answer is Nothing. They have nothing to do with each other. What am I apologizing for? Am I apologizing for doing something wrong? No. What am I apologizing for? For hurting the kid. It's that simple. It's, it's an amazing power to be able to say, when someone says, you hurt me, 
Okay, how many? Do we have any um, uh, nurses? We have, who are our nurses? We got, I know we've got a handful of nurses here, right? Good. So let's say you've got a set of bone. So you've got someone who's got a broken bone, and you've got to set that bone. The bone is now slid next to each other, and you've got to pull the bones apart enough to set them back together, right? What are you going to tell this person right before you do that? This is going to hurt, right? I'm sorry, but this is going to hurt. What are you apologizing for? You may be helping them save a limb, but you're, oh, I'm so sorry, but this is going to hurt. Well, you're apologizing because you're about to hurt them even though what you're doing is right and good and is in their best interest. You're allowed to apologize because you care enough about somebody. You don't want them to hurt. If them hurting is a consequence of something that you need to do or accidentally do, then it should be easy to say, wow, I'm so sorry that that hurt you. I'm so sorry I ran over you. Once I found that analogy, once Ginger and I discovered the analogy about running the track, and I don't even remember where that analogy came from. I just looking for an analogy one time. We actually, early on, we would sometimes, even, I would even say, like, I'm so sorry I ran you over. Like, that wasn't, wasn't my intention. Can you imagine, by the way, if that was someone's intention? Like, just imagine that for a second. Why would you go to that person? So if you realize you've wronged somebody, you want to go to them and tell them, I'm so sorry I wronged you, or even just, I hurt you. I'm so sorry that what I did or what I said or the way I acted hurt you. Let me, let me apologize for that. I'm sorry about that. Now, if you also did something wrong, you can own that too. That's even additional. That's bonus. You can go, and I was wrong, and I shouldn't have been jogging you know, in the play school area. That was, I shouldn't have been jogging in there. That was a bad idea. Like If you can own something you did wrong in that too, great. That's, that's just bonus. But it's amazing. I think 95, maybe 99% of conflicts in most relationships can be solved with someone people are willing to say, okay, let me own what I did wrong. And then let me apologize for the ways that I hurt you. And it's, it's shocking. And this, this, this idea that Jesus is going to present here, these two ideas, are based on a presumption that we're not out to get each other. We're not trying to hurt each other. But we're going to. I may make what I think is the best decision, and it may be a terrible decision, and it certainly may have awful consequences for you. I may do exactly what I think is best. And yet the consequences of doing what's right sometimes are, are pretty horrific for somebody else. And so for you to be able to do this, this is big. That Jesus, I think Jesus is presuming a level of, of course I can go to this person. I can love them as they are. Yeah, I know their frailties. When we talk about knowing, when you know them and you know their frailties, you know what they're good at and bad at. And it allows you to engage and forgive. We'll talk about forgiveness um, next week a little bit. But the idea of we, it allows us to do that, sometimes even without having to confront always, but when that peace is broken, we go to them and we realize, oh my goodness, that person. Now, here's what's interesting. So if you're the one who is done the wrong, or you're the one who realizes you've hurt someone, Jesus says in Matthew 5, it's your responsibility to go to that person. Man, sorry I did this. Here's what's wild. But in Matthew 18, Jesus, who teaches his little primer on church relationships here in Matthew 18, he says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay, so now here's what's interesting. If you're the one who did the hurting, you need to go seek out that other person. But if you are the one who got hurt, you need to seek out the other person. 
There should be in the Christian world people running into each other in the middle all the time. That should be a common occurrence. Oh my gosh, I was just coming to talk to you. Oh man, let me go first. Like, this should be a common thing. The, pl- the plate gets passed. It would not be, like, it truly would probably be a beautiful thing that if the plate gets past the middle and you take it and you set it on the chair and you get up and you walk and find somebody else in the room and talk to them for a second, then you come back and sit down and pass the plate, the re- put some money in, and then pass the plate the rest of the way, right? Like, that would be an okay thing. Or if you say, you know what, I'm being reminded here, I need to go find this person after the church, or I need to call them or contact them. or This is the picture being created here, is that no matter where we are, remember what Paul said, to the degree it's up to you, so if you're the one who feels that you've been hurt, go. That's up to you. If you're the one who feels like you've hurt someone, go, because that's up to you. This is the picture that's being created. It is a miracle. It's a beautiful thing that we're called to. And, and it won't always work, by the way. Jesus is very clear about that. Sometimes that doesn't work. In fact, that's why he says in Matthew 18, we have a, <coughs> a document online that has all of this kind of fleshed out a little bit, the kind of a church conflict handbook thing that, that especially we try to use when we're facing challenges with it. But, and it mostly is just Matthew 18 spelled out. <coughs> Sorry, I need to block that. <coughs> so, with that in mind, here's what he says. <coughs> if that doesn't work, if going to a one-on-one doesn't work, if they're not interested, then you, what you do is you find someone who agrees with you, and then you go, no, that's not it. That's not what it says at all. <laughs> then what you do is, you, is you, make, you find as many people as you can to be your allies in this conflict. No, no, see, that's not what it says at all. What you do is you find someone who loves, hopefully, who loves you and them. Someone who's willing to speak the truth to both of you and to engage with you. And you take them, because here's the assumption is, if I go to somebody and say, hey, I think I've wronged you, and they go, I'm not interested in reconciling. Or if I go to them and say, hey, I think you wronged me, and they say, I'm not interested in reconciling, then the assumption is, they don't believe my motives. That's got to be the assumption. They don't believe I'm seeking that. Because if, if they thought I was seeking that, they could, we could have that conversation. If they don't, so then what I need to do is bring some people who love both of us to say, hey, you know what, let me, let me point out how you're coming across, Chris, to help you out here. Or you're not looking for allies, you're looking for brothers or sisters who can engage in this conversation together in a healthy way. That's, that's step two. Now, if that doesn't work, then Jesus, who remember, this is Jesus in Matthew 18. He's barely established the church. There's nothing called the church that exists except Jesus and his followers. And yet he says, then you would go to church leadership, which again, remember, at the time that Jesus says this, essentially doesn't exist. So he's saying this for down the road, then you would go to church leadership and involve them, because here's the thing, and and by the way, I've seen that happen once or twice, it never goes well. If if someone's hard-hearted enough where they're not willing to listen to you as a friend, and they're not willing to listen to you and a group of friends, bringing in authority is going to do something? I doubt it. I've not seen that work out very well. I think that's primarily for a couple of things. One is, yes, it trains other people too. It reminds us that there are people who are our authority, who need to sit down with us. It goes back to that Proverbs, that idea that sometimes you have to, you confront the mocker or the scoffer, the rebel, but the reason you're doing that is to teach the fool. So this person's a rebel. They've picked their side. They're stuck in the mud. They're hard-hearted. But when the fool who hasn't made up their mind where to stand yet sees you confront this person, they may go, hmm, I need to learn from this. Fools usually don't, but if they do, man, that's awesome. 
Remember what Jesus says, when you do this confrontation, you have this conversation, you save your brother, you, you rescue that brother. You have found a brother again. That's worth the risk. That's the point Jesus is making. It is worth the risk to do this at whatever level. But I think there's a second thing, and that's the spiritual nature of this. And this, this rocks my world a little bit. I don't know fully how to understand this. I don't pretend to understand the depths of this, but listen to this. Matthew 18, 18, he ends his little treatise there with this. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I don't, I don't pretend to understand the depth of that, but look at how that connects back over to what Paul says in Romans 12. In Romans 12, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. See, there's an eternal significance to human relationships. And there comes a point at which, you, if you cannot reconcile, if someone is unwilling under any circumstances to really reconcile, if they're not willing to reach out or be reached out to, if they're not willing to take that risk to save their relationship, then, then you have a problem. And if that's the way that that works out, eventually there comes a spiritual nature in this, which is your job is essentially done. Your job is not to avenge. We don't have the right perspective to bring justice. Very often, much less vengeance. It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary. So, God's job will be to balance the scales. Again, we'll talk about that some more next week. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals onto his head. Now, if you're like me, you've been raised with this, this little phrase here at the end to have probably one, of, probably one definition and probably the wrong one. Very often, this is taught as though this is the Christian version of vengeance. Okay, so don't avenge, don't avenge yourselves, but instead, when you do nice things, do keep doing nice things to them because they're going to hate it. Oh, you're going to make them miserable by doing these nice things. So they're just going to get more and more mad. Isn't that awesome? No. See, that's not, that would go against the whole point. The motivation here isn't to humiliate or horrify this person. It isn't to punish this person by continuing to do nice things. But very often it's taught that way, as if this is the Christian version of a of a prank where you have a, 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 you know, a bucket full of coals, and when they walk under, you go like, <laughs> hot coals on your head. It's really funny. So third-degree burns are always funny. This, is a, this idea, though, I think there's a better picture here, and I do think there are two possibilities, both of which um, have great basis for themselves, and fortunately, they lead to the same essential motivation as to what it is that we're doing here. So I want to read this to you. The first one is the idea of shame. The idea is that you're shaming the person by doing these nice things to them, that you're revealing their shame to them, Let me, um, or, or being nice to them and therefore doing that. If it should go out, this is a quote, if it should go out talking about um, uh, people had fires in their homes, obviously, at least coal fires all the time in their home. Um, if it should go out, some member of the family would take the brazier to a neighbor's house to borrow fire. He or she would lift the brazier to their head and start for home. If the neighbor is a generous person, she will heap the brazier full of coals. So to feed an enemy and give him drink was like heaping an empty brazier with live coals, which just meant food, warmth, and life to the person needing it. And that was the symbol of the finest generosity. So <clears> that this idea of heaping burning coals came from this is a third good thing. You give them food, that's good. You give them water, that's good. You give them coals, that's good. 
Now, there's problems with that, and one is that it preaches too well, which always makes me very suspicious of anything that preaches that well. Um, the problem, when you go back and dig into it, is there's not a lot of research for the fact that people carried around braziers of coals on their head. Um, yes, people in the Middle East do sometimes carry things on their head. I don't know that a metal object full of coals is one of the things that you would naturally carry around on your head, however. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little suspicious of that. It is from Proverbs, so, so Paul is quoting the book of Proverbs, and the Egyptians did apparently have a concept of giving coals as a gift. And so, but again, the language here doesn't feel like you're going to heap burning coals on their head. That doesn't feel like that's a positive, um, the way it plays out. It feels like there's something, there's a negative to it. And so more likely, this is, a, this is one of the two that works out, that, that this is an idiom for revealing someone's shame to them, revealing someone's dishonor to them. This is an honor-shame culture, and it's kind of like um, everything in this culture has this honor-shame aspect to it. So you may know of the law, for example, that you're not supposed to um, uh, harvest the corners of your field, which created a conversation in harvesting the corner of the fields because it doesn't tell you how, <coughs> how big the corners have to be. So, <coughs> so if I had a corner's of my field were really small so that people could come and take what they wanted from my fields. Well, if, if Mr. Goldstein next door had a much bigger corners to his fields, then what would happen is my sons would naturally go, hey, Dad, Mr. Goldstein's corners are a lot bigger than yours. Is he a more generous man than you, Dad? That's the conversation that's meant to create. And so the idea would be that as I do these nice things to this person, that at some point they're going to go keep doing mean things, he keeps doing nice things, what is wrong with me? And that, that's, that the, the language, heat burning coals on your head, would be similar to like, you're going to put egg on their face. That they go, oh, look at what I'm doing. I'm going to come back to this one. Because I think there's something to that. However, I do think even more likely, the fact that this is from Proverbs, that we want to look at the concept of heaping of coals in the Old Testament. And essentially, as it looks like without exception, when you have God heap coals on someone in the Old Testament, it is always judgment. It's always an act of judgment when God brings coals. And this passage, even though this little section here says, you will heap coals on their head, it seems to be implying, because the passage goes, you do this, God does this. You do this, God does this. You do this, and you will heap burning coals on their head. So it seems like what God is saying here, it's kind of like back to what Jesus said about being loosed or bound, is that Jesus is saying, listen, you're now part of this person's judgment before God. By you not taking vengeance, you are leaving room for God's vengeance to pile up. You are essentially heaping burning coals on this person, which is what God then uses as he judges this person. It's not our job to judge. It's not our job to condemn. It's not our job to avenge. It is our job to continue doing what's right, to love, extraordinarily right, love someone who hates us, continue to give food to our enemy, to give water to someone who hates us, to pray for those who persecute us, to be kind to those who dog us and hound us and hunt us down. That we would continue to do that, to be gentle with those who betray us, that that's what we're doing. Now, if that's part of this, that there's a spiritual, eternal aspect to those behaviors. Now, here's the hope. Whether you're saying, 
listen, I'm going to reveal this shame. Or I'm going to, I'm going to leave room for God's judgment. Either way, the hope is the same. The hope is that they will see it. Anytime you see God's judgment revealed in advance, it's because God wants people to repent. That they will some point look and realize there's a big old huge pile of coals and say, I don't want those coals poured out on me by God. I now see this radical way that I have been so unkind, that I have been so this or so that, or I've been so unfair, or I've been so dishonest, or I've been so whatever, and you're still being nice to me. You're still trying to have some relationship with me that I would go, wow. Now, I think part of why we defer to that shame one so quickly is because we've been there. You've, you've been a jerk, and then your spouse does something nice for you. And, and you know your heart, because at that point in your heart, you either get more mad if your heart's off, but if your heart is right, then, then that heaps burning coals on your head, and you go, well, what am I doing? When you're, when you're yelling at your kid and they come up and give you a hug, right? And you're like, oh boy, right? Wow, just messed this one up. So like this happens all the time. That's why we so quick to, we're so quick to assume this because when we see God's judgment piling up beside us, hopefully we do repent. We do catch on and go, oh, let me, let me change this in my life. Let me become aware of this. Let me have this revealed before things fall apart for me. We are confronting their waiting judgment when we're kind, even when they're mean, when we're generous, even when they're stealing from us. Like that's, that's what we're talking about. The pattern here is that we do something and God does something. So I, I think that's what's going on here. And therefore, in verse 21, we get this do not overcome, do not be overcome but ev with evil, but overcome evil with good. Because part of this challenge, Jesus brings this all the way to the point of evil, not just misunderstanding, not just persecution, but to, all the way to the point of evil. And that we overcome evil with good because that's who we are. It's not because that's who they are, because that's who we are. Now listen, this, Jesus is going to tell you, I mean, uh, yeah, back in Matthew 18, Jesus actually says, at the point when you realize, listen, we've tried all this. And so the nature of the relationship has to change. And he says, at some point, you treat them like they're an outsider. They're no longer part of the fellowship, like they're a Gentile, so to speak, from the Jewish perspective. Now, this doesn't mean they become, uh, we don't throw rocks at them or spit on them or, or whatever. That's not how we treat unbelievers. We just have to become intentional in the way we relate to them. They now become a mission field, not a brother. I'm probably not going to go confess my secret sins with this person because this is someone who cannot handle that type of love. This is a person who, who they're going to take my, my kindness and they're going to interpret it as weakness. They're going to take my gentleness and interpret it as an opportunity to abuse me. So no, that changes. I don't, I don't go in. I give, but I don't take. I give, but I don't receive. This is what missionary work often types is. You go and you give, and you're not getting much back, except you may be getting... In fact, you may get a lot of negatives back and that kind of stuff. Sometimes that's the case. This is the idea. This is the radical idea. So with that in mind, what is our goal? Our goal here is to seek first his kingdom, to reveal the miraculous gospel. But in order to do this well, so let me work my way backwards, we need to be able to confess our sins to each other, to pray for each other, 
as it says in James, to lift each other up and to stir one another to love and good works, like it says in Hebrews, um, to use the type of language that encourages each other, like it says in Ephesians, to forgive each other, as it says in Philippians. I mean, this, these are the things we're called to do, but how do we do that if we don't care to know one another it's our natural tendency to turn people into something they aren't and then, re- and then engage with that. To, 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 to summarize someone in a way that allows us to be rude to them or mistreat them or, or whatever rather than treat them as they really are because we don't actually know them like we should. So with that in mind, uh, two and a half years ago, I went on a, a sabbatical. And, uh, and the sabbatical started a week before I thought it would. Um, I went to the Dominican to go work. In a, come on up, Dan. Um, I went to go down there to, uh, to the Dominican Republic to work. And sure enough, I get there and they assigned uh, me, and Michael Coffey was there, and a bunch of other people were there, but to, um, to create water purifiers, which is, I mean, if you've done short-term mission work, I mean, that's what, you're just kind of a cog. Um, you're, you're probably mostly underfoot of the missionaries who are trying to get the work done. I'm, I'm a little cynical about this, by the way, so excuse <laughs> this. There's a, there's a perfectly, there's some perfectly good roles for this, and we talk about that. One of them is exactly what God accomplished here with Dan and I, which is the relationship between the believer here and the believer there. That is a powerful thing in regards to short-term missions. But very often, you've, the person who goes on the mission just is a, is a cog that's being used to crank out something that probably would be better to pay a local to do because they need the money. Um, or it's, it's just an underfoot of the person who's there who's trying to do the ministry there, but now they have an American they have to entertain for, you know, 10 days or whatever. <coughs> so we, I, I go with totally all of that bad attitude, by the way. That level of bad <laughs> attitude, I went. And I get there, and so Michael and I get assigned making water purifiers, which I've done some version of that kind of thing before, and I was like, right, of course. That's, we're not even with the other kids. We're not with our students. I'm not with our kids. And we get back, and we meet this guy, Dan, and, and we go to drive to this house, and he goes, we build the water purifiers behind this house. He introduces us to these, to this nice, these nice ladies. Um, the one on the far right um, is whose house it is. And, uh, and he's like, so here's where we make the water purifiers. So we're like, great. Hi. Good to meet you. We move to the back of the house, and Mike and I get back there, and we, Mike and I get back there. We take all our stuff off, and Dan's not there. <laughs> and we're like, what do we do? So we stood there and wait for a few minutes, and we look back around the corner, and there's, there's Dan with a very gentle, though appropriately patronizing look on his face, going, come back up here. Come back out here and sit here with these ladies and have coffee with them. So we come and sit down, and what Dan showed me over the, those days that we were there, not many days, but very powerfully through the Spirit, was the need to stop. Um, and so I want to... To, to know these people, to get to know them. So I want to talk about the consequences and the value in that. So talk a little about the importance of what you're doing when you're doing that and why you do it that way, and then we'll keep going from there. But start there. Yeah, so, so easy. It's, it's, it's much easier for most of us to just to, to go in and focus on the task. It's just the culture that we're, we're, we're used to. We're going to go. We're going to accomplish. We know better. We know your problems. We know the solutions, and, and, and we go, and we bring that um, and all the while, um, you depicted that physically as you guys passed right by the people that we're trying to minister to and connect with around the corner. And really, that's the whole purpose of what we're doing, right? I mean, we're trying to, we're trying to uh, meet a physical aspect, physical need. Uh, but more importantly, uh, what God values most is the spirit that's in, in, in front of us and, and represented in the people. Um, so we very much want to intentionally go out um, and recognize 
and empower the people um, to see themselves in the image in which they've been created. We each can, we each are, uh, have the image of God. We're all created in the image of God, and we're all been, give, been given uh, gifts and talents um, to a degree that we're to contribute, um, and then that, that restoration to that. Um, so it is very important to sit and connect um, and spend time. It's our most valuable commodity that we have. We all have a certain amount. I can't purchase any more. I can't extend that. for, any, And I don't know how long I have. Um, I don't know how much is in my account. Um, so um, it is very important that we connect and then that, that we increase someone's dignity and value and that they're able to see that um, in themselves um, as God sees them. So mm-hmm. I took this picture as well as a reminder to me, like this is... <laughs> This is ministry in action right there. And, and it's so easy, again, for us as Westerners. As, and listen, I know I'm chief of sinners, so I just want you to know, like, I, I know that I am wired to do this maybe more poorly than anyone else in the room. Um, it's not an excuse. It's just it's not my bent. Um, it, was, it was a gift to me to have someone that week who kept saying, stop, stop. No, we're going we're gonna to do this. Just stop. Just sit. And I'm, I'm, in my brain, I'm trying to think like, okay, well, what are we going to do next? And... That was not an important question for me to be asking. It was none of my business what we were going to be doing next. And so um, to be shepherded that way. So you're, you've been with Student International, which is a great ministry organization, which we partner with. Um, but you're transitioning into another one. So talk a little about what that is, and then I'll come back to the question here. Okay. Um, yeah, we've, um, for some time we've been praying about um, what God would have us do. God's revealing to us um, we're going out on a new venture, completely trusting him, um, but we're gonna, what we're calling now um, a family wellness and resource center, um, education, teenage pregnancy, care for child, um, all that, there, there's a huge gap in that. Um, my wife and I um, want to address that. We want to fill in the gaps. We want to walk along. Um, our first step would be walking along teenage, um, um, teenagers that are, that are pregnant. Um, really, it's a highly Catholic-influenced um, culture, so we want, we want to make sure that we're welcoming them in. Um, we want to be inclusive. Um, we want to help them understand what's going on with their bodies and th- thus the result with the babies. Um, we see that going into um, daycare and childcare. Um, first five years, early childhood development um, and education, we want to reach out to the, the fathers as well, have them understand their responsibility um, in, in the situation we want to unite families um, as well as um, providing a daycare so these, these young teenage moms can, um, who typically have dropped out of school or, and have been shunned from their family can have a place to, to be restored in that um, and, and, and re, uh, restart their education and complete that. Um, or if they need to work, then, then we would be a resource for them to, to, to watch their child. Um, but, um, yeah, just, we, we, we just, we, it seems almost daily God continues to reveal and, and, and mm-hmm. peels out like an onion. It just, it, it started out initially as my wife wanting to have a preschool, and then now it's, it's women's Bible study, study and restoration and, and, and men's groups and um, preschool and, and child care and education and, and, and all that. So that's where we're headed. How did you know that these were some of the things needed in, a, in addition to what ministries like SI do, in addition to the short-term missions, which, again, does have value, even though I can be cynical about it, um, in regards to it, it grows us up a lot when we go. and that. But you, you learned, you all picked up on there were some negative, even though the goal was positive, that some of the effects weren't. Yeah. 
culturally, um, what we may not be aware of when we when we go and. Um, I'm so glad you picked up on it on such a short time and in short terms is, is um, when we go into the culture that we come from being North Americans um, and we enter a developing country and a developing uh, cultures, um, we, we steamroll them. Um, if we come in and there's one American and 50 or a crowd of, of locals such as this and as soon as we open our mouth, that ends all the conversations. They're looking to us for the solutions. Um, we've created a dependency um, where um, they're dependent on us as the North Americans in many ways. Um, and they, there's that lack of effort and dignity because we've stripped that from them. We've represented all the answers all in one person or one, one action. Um, so we want to intentionally, again, we want to empower uh, the people to understand, to, to one, recognize concerns within their communities, um, how to contribute as, as far as um, what are some of the, uh, the solutions within that group of community that they can contribute to um, so that they can have ownership of that problem and buy-in. Um, and really, to, to even go further into the future, it is now reproducible, right? So if you think about discipleship, it needs to be something, and that's what we're trying to do, in essence, um, is give them, give them something that we, one, we need to recognize before we come to God who we are and, and, and uh, the problem um, and how to resolve that and take ownership of that is what we're talking about now, um, and then work towards a solution. So there needs to be an interdependence, and that's really where we wanna fill in the gap. We wanna be a listening ear um, so we can address the correct issues, and that comes with time, and that comes with knowing you're the person that's in front of you. It was interesting, we were talking this morning, you throw up that first picture back up. Um, one of the things that's interesting is, so for us, or for me, that we're not just going down there and being introduced to a ministry and a cog was really powerful and, and meaningful. But one of the things that came out that Dan was sharing with me is that, and not necessarily these ladies, but that what some of the locals were feeling like is, so there's a, there's a picture of me and Michael with these, you know, these three ladies. But those three ladies exist in dozens of photos like that with interchangeable white people. And so they begin to feel like they're the zoo exhibit, that you come down and meet, greet them in their poverty and, and somehow that that's something for, we're, we're using them to teach us a lesson, which of course has, is not anywhere near what the goal was, but how did you, how do we find that kind of stuff out? Like, how do we hear that? So how did you, how does that happen? Um, yeah, again, it's, it's, it's not being caught up so much on, on you as, we can almost be represented as, as, as us as Savior and have that as, as our complex, that, that we're there to restore and uh, as many of you all know, hopefully all of you know, that, that Christ is our only Savior, so we need to take ourselves out of that equation. Um, but we've heard it. We've heard stuff um, from the community, from the people that we're trying to minister and befriend and genuinely come and understand them and say, well, gosh, the only reason you come into my house, the only time that you engage with me is when we have people coming down from the Western world. You're using us to display some image of poverty to, and again, it never, never, and I don't think it's an intentional mm -hmm. thing, but it changes the focus from them to the visitors. Um, we're, we're being more accommodating on, on trying to show the contrast between um, what is familiar here in this culture <coughs> versus what, look how bad it could be. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow we need to fill the, the gap, us as North Americans, and, and that's just not the case. Right? We, need, we need to make sure that we're pointing people to Christ um, as him, as our only, our only savior. So, Mike, what struck me about this, and I want us to take away from this, as we're talking about relationships between believers and 
is that I don't know that we would ever have, that, that you guys would ever have picked that up if it wasn't for hours of sitting on the couch on the porch drinking coffee before someone like Lucila is going to feel safe to say, hey, you know what this feels like sometimes? Because, by the way, when I went back later the next year and brought my family, I was like, you guys have all got to come meet Lucila and see the house. And a... Now, I don't mean that as a, because she's a zoo exhibit, but you know what, if a bunch of people do that, you could start feeling that way. If, I mean, if we had random people showing up at our house to greet me and go like, hey, this is the, like, well, okay, bye. I mean, they, and then they leave and they, like, it, could, it would totally feel that way after a while. So to go, how do we make those adjustments? Well, here's what it required. What it required was a good enough relationship where people know enough or care enough to know what's going on and then to be willing to take the time to listen. This is why we talk about life groups and small groups is so important is because I, I can't do that for everybody. The staff can't do that for everybody. Nobody can do that for a thousand people. We, we have to have these groups where we can sit and listen and get to know each other and, and, and to know what's going on well enough. It requires this and it requires that type of relationship. This was a beautiful picture of this to me and again, I know I'm chief of sinners, but the importance of, of being able to stop and get still for a few minutes and be available, um, uh, even just, it was funny, last night is at the house, and I realized as he's standing there that I have this natural temptation. I, I, while we're talking, I start doing something, and I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> and then a few seconds later, I realize I'm in the middle of doing something else. I'm like, oh, gosh. Like I'd, it, is, it is just, I, it, you know, Ginger has to deal with it 24-7, and uh, in me, not in herself. But this, this is a, how do we get there? And part of this is the discipline of learning to take a minute and be still and get hot coffee that you can't drink quickly and sit, sit down and finish that cup. And then maybe have a second one while you're sitting there. And you may have to do that nine times in a day if you're in the Dominican. Uh, you drink lots of coffee down there. And so, Amen. but that's a good reminder to us as well that we're there for hearing from one another um, to the degree that we can and that we're finding communities where we can. So I want to pray. Um, so go ahead and stand with me. We're, we're running a little bit long, which is normal, but especially on a day like today. Um, but I want to pray. And, and obviously, if, if, you've, if you're looking for the community, you've already been through the Welcome Home team, you can come up and join this morning. That would be great. Um, we want to be praying for one another. I mean, so, you know, 20% are sick today and another 20% will be next Sunday. And so uh, hopefully not you, right? But this is a... Um, Part of that right now, as we're living in community, that happens at times, but to pray over what God is doing in us, but, but that we would, we would be able to kind of get outside of our own head and our own way of thinking well enough, long enough, just to listen a little bit, um, and, and that we would let the Holy Spirit be the one, we would let God's job be the one to avenge, and then our job is to figure out how to continue to try to give, how to continue to go to people, how to continue to take the risk to restore a brother or a sister um, again, it's a miracle to the degree it's up to us, and it may not be up to us, but the degree it is, let's answer to the one who, who we're looking to judge us as well. Um, and that's, that's the motivation here, um, and to learn from that. If you, if you would like to learn more, uh, I will um, unapologetically tell you, I would, I would love to see our church supports Dan, um, and, and our family does, and the ministry they're doing, and, and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, that I'd love for there to be some more families. He's got some prayer cards up here, in fact... Um, John, I'm going to send you, you and Derek to the back, and maybe if anybody wants to grab that when you're leaving out in a second, they'll be back there with them. But, um, uh, but if you want to be a partner with them as well, I'd love for you to make contact with him. Come talk with him when, he, when we're done here in a second. So, Father, thank you so much for the wonderful gift of your word. Thank you that your gospel, written, written down 2,000 years ago, um, 
inspired by the power of your spirit, illuminated in our lives, still speaks. It is, it is exactly what we need to hear so often. Um, God, help us to, to love and trust and to give people the chance to be restored. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to do this. This is something that um, we, we deal with 100% of the time in every community that we're a part of. Um, and so I pray, Lord, that we would live this out uh, well. This is one of the things, the relationships are one of the hard parts for us, and you know that. You were here. You faced it. You were in some doozies of some relationships, and you, um, you loved through those. And you love us, and you continue to restore us. And Lord, I pray that you will continue to um, motivate us to live that out as well. Lord, as we realize that only you can accomplish these things in us and through us, and we ask that you would do so in your son's name. And we lift up our friends and family um, who are sick this morning. For those um, who have family members in China um, who are right in the middle of the, the pandemic going on there, I pray for your provision and for your miracles and to be lived out in powerful ways right now as we see it around the world, that you would comfort people in sickness um, as your gospel would grow in the midst of that through the name of your son, we pray. Amen.